Hello, everyone. My name is Ashley Lauren Rogers, and today I'm being joined by a very special guest. Uh, I'm going to let my guest introduce themselves, tell us your name, your pronouns, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is S.A. Hunt, which is short for Samara Abigail. Um, my pronouns are she, her, all feminine pronouns. I used to be a soldier um, for about eight years. I went to Afghanistan, and now I'm a writer. I write horror fantasy novels. I keep trying to write just straight horror novels, but they always pull in some kind of fantasy element. <laughs> uh, yeah, so our listeners uh, might know the difference, like the difference between, say, fantasy and horror, but can you just uh, tell those that don't know, like what, when you say that you sometimes fantasy elements creep in, like what is the, what is the difference? Like witches, I guess. I mean, they're, they're kind of a horror thing by themselves, but like, then you think about like old storybooks and like, you know, witches that live out in the woods beyond the reaches of the castle or whatever. You always hear about them in like medieval fantasy and magicians. Mm. There's magicians in the books too, so. Mm. So a lot of it, so a lot of it is based around more like a, a magic, like a magical element, which creates the fantasy as opposed to if it's just sort of an unexplained horror, unexplained thing that's happening, right? Kind of, yeah. There's a lot of other places people could look if they want to find out, if they really want to find yeah. out. I was just, I was just curious, like what your, what your definition of the difference between like fantasy and horror and what makes it fantasy. So, Yeah. Yeah, like, I, I start out with these horror situations and, like, the, this horror phenomena, and it always seems to kind of snake back to some kind of fantastical motivation or reason or source. Um, like, a lot of things and incidents tend to track back to, like, old gods and, like I said, magicians and witches and myths and legends and things like that like bigfoot or chupacabra or whatnot yeah very awesome so with with that in mind can you tell us a little bit about uh your malice domestica series and let me know if i'm pronouncing that incorrectly <laughs> no that's fine well it kind of started off with um the phrase coventry i was thinking about the word coventry and it kind of broke up into the words coven and tree and i was like it kind of got me thinking, you know, it's just one of those random things that pop into your head, like pretty much all of these book ideas do. I was thinking, why would a coven have a tree? Maybe it's some kind of a dryad. Maybe it's, maybe it's kind of a prison for somebody they sacrificed. Why would they be protecting this tree? Mm. And I thought maybe they killed somebody and like they're, Maybe the tree is kind of a protector of this person's grave, or maybe the person is like imprisoned inside the tree, mm. which is like, I guess, where that fantastical element comes back in. Yeah, that's that, that was kind of the seed for the whole thing. And at first I was going to do sort of like one of those cozy mysteries. It was going to, it wasn't going to be nearly as dark as it, as it turned out to be. It was going to be more like, one of those cozy mysteries that you find in the bookstore that are like, you know, they've got recipes in the back and just that whole murder she wrote kind of vibe. But then I started to get into the motivation of why this 
spirit was locked in this tree. And I thought, why would they be protecting this person in this tree? Or why would they have imprisoned this person in this tree? And I thought, maybe this person meant something to somebody else. And why would that happen? Who would that be? And I, I started to think about, I think this was about the time I got heavily into Chuck Wendig's Marion Black books. And then I read his um, Atlanta Burns books. And they've all got these strong female protagonists that just have this electric undercurrent of like anger and in- indignation and just this fury kind of with the world around them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I kind of wanted to, I kind of wanted to explore that whole, that mentality and that physicality and kind of bring that into the story and see what that kind of, you know, angry rock chick kind of quasi goth character would do against, or like vis-a-vis juxtaposed against this coven of witches. And then I thought, what kind of witches are these witches? And uh, for some reason, the first thing that came to mind was the Golden Girls. I wanted to make a coven of witches out of the Golden Girls. I thought they would make a really good coven. Amazing. I love that so much. I'm not going to lie. I feel like I feel like we've just sold it to our entire audience. It's <laughs> on that premise. <laughs> what, uh, so, do you, well, then let me ask you this. Do you have, like, who, which Golden Girl are you? I am definitely Dorothy, without a doubt. Maybe with a little bit of Sophia. When it comes to the coven in the book, I think three of them are kind of more loosely based on the Golden Girls, but the the main one, um, Marilyn Cuddy, she is pretty much a doppelganger for B. Arthur. Because that just that's just a such a strong like emotional silhouette Mm. and there's just yeah yeah there's just so much menace (laughs) i guess you could say to dorothy just this imposing physicality especially when she's joking about like poisoning her mother's tea that just (laughs) it struck me as so sneaky and like just this evil witch kind of thing to do (laughs) i love it so much uh so the 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 series itself focuses on uh, a character who is a YouTuber, though, correct? Like that's the uh, like it's it's mainly about this YouTuber who creates a, a a channel all about that the general public doesn't know they're actually serious about the these uh, magical creatures that they are or magical. I will apologize. I have not been able to read it yet. I want to. I have just been very busy, so a lot of this is like. This sounds, everything that I've heard about this book is just like, this is up my alley. I'm going to read this this week once I'm ready and once I actually have a little bit of time off. So can you just tell us like a little bit about this uh, main character who's a YouTuber? Like, Yeah. Back around the time I went to Afghanistan, I was real heavy into the whole Slenderman mythos. Mm. And there were, there were several YouTube channels that were kind of dedicated to these singular people's kind of mystery slash adventures trying to explore that whole slender man mythos and they were just really engaging to be honest i follow a lot of horror gamer youtubers and there's this there's this element of personality that they bring to their videos like 
when they play video games, you know, it's not about the video games. It's about their personality and it's about kind of having that, that quote unquote friend, you know, it kind of reminds me of when I was little and I would sit and watch my stepbrother play video games. And I just, it was nice to go back to that. That was kind of a nostalgic feeling. And so I kind of wanted to bring that into the story, that whole sense of going on an adventure with somebody because those videos really, they really engaged me for a while. I really liked, you know, following that person through their, their adventures, trying to find out who the Slender Man is and where their family went and like that kind of thing. So I thought that, that, that whole um, kind of je ne sais quoi would be really cool to bring into this character. And I also enjoyed kind of exploring that, 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 that dichotomy of, their off-camera personality versus their on-camera personality because like i've seen like vlog videos that these gamer youtubers have posted and like they seem totally different like in their gaming videos there's like super outgoing and just honestly kind of silly and then you get into their vlog videos where they're talking about slice of life kind of stuff and you know, just being kind of sentimental about this or that. And it's just this, it's like Jekyll and Hyde, you know? Well, and there's, because there is that weird disconnect, like, the, I don't know if I'd call it a disconnection, but especially with a lot of YouTubers, that idea of when you're on camera, you're, even though it's this almost fabricated sense of, I'm talking directly to you. Yeah. But like, you kind of have to have that, but at the same time, I don't know. Yeah. Like I, I find, cause I just find YouTubers fascinating, like this whole YouTube culture and the, the YouTube celebrities and who they are behind. So yeah. Yeah. I know, I know you mentioned, uh, because I think a lot of the reason that people don't understand the whole, uh, playthroughs and watching people play video games is like, well, why wouldn't you just play it? And very much like you brought up, like there's, there's a lot of people that grew up watching an older sibling or watching another sibling or a friend play video games. And was there a game growing up that you watched that you were just engrossed by that you just said like, oh my gosh, this, this is so fun. This is so great. I love watching this game in particular, or was it just sort of whatever uh, your stepbrother was playing? Um, yeah, it was basically whatever he was playing. Um, it was mostly the Final Fantasy series, especially Final Fantasy VII. When that came out, we went bonkers for it we had played a lot of final fantasy 6 and chrono trigger and we played a lot of secret of mana i don't know if you know it or not but it's got kind of a multiplayer aspect the co-op aspect mm -hmm. and we played that together we played that a lot so like when when final fantasy came out or final fantasy 7 came out we were just we went nuts for it and i, I think i said watched him pretty much play that whole game <laughs> that's a long one that was a that was a good three three discs four discs i'm trying to remember yeah but yeah yeah no that one that one was a was an investment have you out of curiosity just off the cuff have you played the remake yet i haven't but i've watched some youtube videos <laughs> of it i watched the, um the rad the rad brad play a little bit of it mm. i haven't watched the whole thing though yeah, I, I don't have a PlayStation and it's not on the computer yet, so I'm going to have to wait until, I think I have to wait a year. But I hear it's literally just absolutely like a completely different story now, and it's fascinating. Yeah, totally. The gameplay looks a lot different too. It's all action. Like there's no, it doesn't look like there's any turn-based stuff in it like the original. 
Yeah, like I know I played 15 and I think that they modeled their their action after the the 15 style and I just kept forgetting how to play it. So I haven't finished. <laughs> I haven't gotten very far in 15. I just like it's cool. I just don't understand this. That's fine. Yeah. Maybe I'll watch a let's play. <laughs> I think the YouTube thing where it relates to the mouse domestica books is also I wanted to find some way for the main character to fund her travels in the first place. And I just really like the whole kind of homemade, self-made entrepreneur, you know, vibe that a lot of the YouTubers have. You know, they get up in the morning and they do their videos and they, you know, sit there for hours editing this footage and just, you know, and then, and then there's the whole community aspect where, you know, some of them have Patreons and some of them have Discords where they talk to their fans and stuff, you know, and I just... I, I don't know. I just think that's really neat, you know? So within your work, what are the important things you think about when crafting it? Like what is important to you when it comes to sitting down and writing a new piece? Well, to me, I think the most important thing about writing a novel is momentum. And by that, I mean, you don't want your reader to put the book down. That is book death. Hmm. You know, you want to keep them engaged and turning pages and you want to see them say things like i was up until three in the morning reading your book you know i blew through your book in like two days you know that's the kind of thing you want because then they go and get the next book and the next book but if they put it down and they don't come back to it then you're kind of you know you're stuck you're 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 in a hole that kind of feeds into um my second point which is authenticity and that kind of manifests in multiple ways. One of them that's important to me is making sure that the marginalized people in my books um, are represented truthfully. You know, because I, I don't want these people to get to these points in this book where they're like, this doesn't feel realistic to me. This doesn't feel like what I experience or what I have to go through. And so I don't feel like I can't engage with this book anymore. And that kind of plays into the third point about that, which is the writer saying, um, write what you know. And a lot of people say, kind of knee jerk say, well, you shouldn't follow that saying, write what you know, because, well, what if you don't know anything? What if I don't know what the surface of Mars is like? What if I don't know what it's like to have hypothermia in arctic waters or this or that a lot of people think it's you know they think write what you know means that you can only write stories about things that you are familiar with or like professions that you've had or the kind of subset of humanity that you belong to like you can only write stories about white people if you're white or you can only write stories about plumbers because you're a plumber, which, you know, that's not it at all. I think right what you know is about using your own experiences and emotions and sensations to inform and lend more authenticity and flavor to the things you are writing. Like maybe you don't know what it's like to step onto the surface of Mars or whatever, and it's super cold there, but maybe you've lived in Michigan and like you've been out on a below zero day where it's so cold that everything is frozen and you just feel like you're walking around on an alien planet. Like 
it's hard to describe, but like maybe you understand what that kind of cold is and you can use that sensation to then inform your narrative about being on this alien planet where it's super cold. And maybe you don't know what it's like to walk around in a spacesuit all the time. But like the quarantine now, um, a lot of people have spent all of their time at their apartment or at their house. And so they kind of get that same sensation of being secluded or insulated from everything around them. Yeah. Yeah. And so they can bring that, that sense of not being able to engage anything into that character that's wearing that spacesuit all the time. Yeah. Like I think very much along what you were saying about people using that term, right? What you know to only mean write characters that are literally you and have your experiences. Yeah. Uh, it's very much like that's the, some people would talk about like the law, like the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And even though we're not talking about a law, it's still that idea of like, I feel like they're not really respecting the spirit of what that phrase means, which very much like you're saying, you know, the idea you can get an idea of something and you can get a feeling of something and you can write to that feeling, but not necessarily have a specific experience. But at the same time, yeah, like I, I think that there are a lot of writers that get hung up on that specific aspect of like, uh, I'm not a woman or uh, I'm not a et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and therefore they put no women in their pieces. They don't write from women's perspectives. They don't write from perspectives of people that really exist in their world. And it's a complete disservice to their piece because it looks like the worlds that they are crafting are just them. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's not the world that I live in. That's not the world that anyone lives in is just people that are me all around. I'm curious if you have found ways to, because I know that you talked about uh, keeping momentum going. Uh, have you found ways to uh, make sure that that momentum continues throughout your novels? Or is that something where it's just getting a feeling for it and working on it in edits? I found that kind of the roller coaster approach is a good way to go about it. Mm. I noticed while watching the paranormal activity movies that it had this really up and down and up and down kind of roller coaster style where it would have these normal parts, you know, where they're just kind of hanging out and doing their daily thing and just kind of talking to each other. And then once night fell and the camera cut to just sitting in the bedroom watching for what's going to happen next, you know, and it just kind of, it kind of yo-yos you up and down and keeps you hooked, keeps you going on what's next. It gives you time to rest and then it builds you back up and then you rest again and then it builds you back up again. I kind of messed up with my third book because, you know, the Hellion, the, the third Malice book. I wrote it as kind of a homage to Mad Max Fury Road because I wanted to craft this chase movie where it's just go, 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 go all the time. And so when I took it to Diana, my first editor, she was like, we need to kind of break up this action because it, it can't just be 90 miles an hour the whole way through. And I started to think about, you know, that whole roller coaster kind of technique. And I thought, you know, you're right. I kind of need to break this up. And I think now it reads a lot better than it did because it's got those moments of rest and intention and then rest and intention again. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally forgot your original question. <laughs> I kind of got on a roll there. 
No, that's totally fine. It was it was definitely in the uh, it was definitely in the spirit of the question as well. <laughs> but it was all about like momentum and whether you found ways to kind of keep momentum going. And and it sounds like a lot of it is ha having the idea of like creating these uh, peaks and valleys of what's happening of, okay, there are moments that can be a little bit slower, but at the same time, it has to keep ramping up and there has to be that because if it's just go, 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 as much as it sounds like, oh, you want something that's constantly moving, constantly like attacking at the same time, that can be a little uh, uh, tiring. Am I, am I wrong in, in summarizing that or? <laughs> yeah, it kind of, it, as you go along, as you're reading it, it kind of sands you down and kind of desensitizes you to the action and what's going on. Cool. So the next one on my list, uh, I'm curious, what are some things that you wish you knew about the writing process or the business before you started writing fiction? Because there's obviously like a lot, a lot of people out there want to write more. A lot of people like, it's just, it's a thing, but what do you wish you were told ahead of time <laughs> before you sat down and wrote your, your, your books? How absolutely glacial it is. It is so slow. I started off as a <laughs> I started off as a self-publisher and like, you know, I came from this army background where, you know, you have to go, 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 and you gotta get this done now and you gotta be here at a certain time. And you got to be kind of a self-starter. And so when I started self-publishing, you know, I don't really advise this, but I made my own covers. Hmm. And they were they were crap at first. I will admit that. <laughs> and then I started, <laughs> I started getting better and better at them. And so, you know, I had through Amazon, I had visibility on my sales. Once I felt a book was done, I could just slap it up on Amazon, and it was done, and it was on sale. And now, now that I have a traditional publisher, that's not really in my hands anymore. That's also another. Um, aspect of traditional publishing is that I don't have visibility on that anymore. There's not a lot of transparency. Mm. And so once I submit the manuscript, it just kind of, it's like sending a rocket into space with no radio. Like I send it up there and I can see it in the sky. I know it's out there, but I don't really know what's going on. And so <laughs> with it out of my hands, it just seems like it's really slow, you know? And so I'm still coming to terms with that. That is uh, that is the one thing I have heard consistently about anyone who is in the publishing industry is like every aspect. And part of it is like, especially if you're working with a larger publisher, there's a lot of other hands that have to work on a specific thing they have to do. And it just, it takes so long <laughs> for anything to finally happen. Yeah. I will tell you one good thing about it is though, it sounds like it would be a minus, but it's actually a plus that um, the editing phase is a lot more meticulous and a lot more give and take than I expected it to be. It took a lot longer and had a lot more back and forth feedback than I expected. Mm. For some reason, I expected it to be like, um, and, and the proofreading phase was a lot like this, but I expected the whole thing to be more like, you know, I get a copy of the manuscript and there's a few notes down the side and there's a few things to take care of. But no, it turned out to be like, we want to expand this character. We want to reduce this character. We want to eliminate this character altogether. We want to take out this subplot, but we also want to, you know, explain in deeper detail this this other character's motivations and things like that. And so it was a lot more involved than I expected it to be, I think. Yeah, like out of curiosity on a, on a personal level, did you take to that easily? Or was that something that was very like, did you feel a little bit more pushback to 
like, well, they want to change a lot of aspects of the, the manuscript that I've submitted. Like, how did that feel? Some of it I rolled with pretty easy. And then some of it, the, the first issue that I can think of was Diana thought it was a good idea to, the first two books in this series were the original one first book of the, the self-published book. It, it was one whole manuscript called Man, uh, Malice Domestica. And so Diana thought it would be a good idea to break them up, you know, cut it in half and make two books out of them. And so I couldn't really f think of a good breaking point for that. And maybe that kind of reflects in the cliffhanger at the end of the first book, which I didn't I didn't like that at all. But, you know, and I've seen some reviewers react negative to, negatively to that. But at the same time, on the other hand, I think cutting the two books in half or cutting the one book into two books, we added like 30,000 words to um, the both books, you know, new chapters. We expanded on several characters. The second book has a new, much more expanded ending. Yeah. I think even in spite of that, in spite of the cut that we made, I think both books are a lot stronger and a lot better than the original manuscript was. So I was in retrospect, I was happy to have done that. But on, on the other hand, at first they wanted to get rid of Kenway, I think, and build up Joel more. But I feel like Kenway, I feel like he adds a lot of heart to the story. And the fans of the original self-published book responded really positively to him. And so I wanted to keep him. And I told Diana this, and she was like, well, if you want to keep Kenway and something else, I don't remember what it was. But she was like, if you want to keep this, you're going to have to justify it. You're going to have to bulk it up, you know, and make me want this stuff in this book. And so that's what I did. I went in there and I, I retooled and just, you know, reconfigured as much as I could to keep this stuff in the book. And I'm glad I did that too. I'm, I'm glad that I kind of gave a little pushback on that. And I think I think it's important, especially for writers, for especially young writers, especially for writers who have never dealt with uh, either a, an editor or a producer. Like I'm, I focus mostly on plays, but to understand like where a lot of you you can give pushback, you should give pushback, but at the same time, like hear out when people have suggestions, hear out when people are making those suggestions as well. Because you absolutely like you're the writer, you're the one that is like in charge of this, but at the same time, yeah, totally. Just because someone has a suggestion and it's not, and it's an immediate, like, oh God, why? Like, that doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means, okay, how do I internalize this? But yeah. Yeah. And going back to what you just said, you're the writer. You wrote this story. You know what makes it tick. And so, you know, your, your feedback is valuable to the process too. When I was still self-publishing, a lot of the editing I would do, I would do beta readers. I would send it out to 10, 20, 30 people and I would solicit them for feedback on the book. And what I would do is I would gather all of this feedback and I would go over it with a fine tooth comb. The most common issues are the ones that I would address or address the most importantly. A lot of the one-off stuff, you know, just, just a couple of people or like one or two people might've brought up. It's all important to me, but I didn't put as much of an emphasis on going after that kind of stuff, but I would definitely go after this, the big stuff that everybody was like, this needs to be fixed or we all noticed this, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a, oh, there was a playwriting teacher that talked to me about that whole idea of 
every like absolutely listen to all criticism at the same time you don't need to take all criticism but if you're asking 10 people and 10 people are telling you the same thing there's probably something you're gonna have to look at yeah definitely mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. So you, you mentioned a little bit earlier about being uh, formerly in the army. Uh, do you feel comfortable talking a little bit about that, especially because uh, I'll admit we on the podcast have not had someone with military experience uh, on the podcast. So I would just like to hear a little bit about your time and a little bit about what uh, your time in the it was the army, correct? Yeah, the army reserves. Yeah, like just a little bit about whatever you'd be willing to talk about from that and your experience as a trans person in the, in the military. Well, when I was in, I had a lot of pride in myself as a soldier, not necessarily in the institution itself, but I had pride in myself as not necessarily a representative of that kind of symbol or that culture, but like the strength that it gave me and being part of something bigger than myself. You know, and, and finding and having a purpose in that role and that culture, you know, and then I, I was in the service for like eight years and I kept seeing elements of the culture that kind of made me step back and be like, is this really something that I want to associate myself with? Hmm. I worked with a lot of civilian cops. And so now that I've gotten deeper into finding myself as a queer person and being part of the queer community. I look back on my time in the military and um, especially now <clears throat> with the whole, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, the kind of things that I'm just seeing these cops out here doing. And I'm kind of just a little ashamed of my time in the service now, especially with the civilian cops that I had to associate with. And so I don't really see it that much as a source of pride anymore even the whole culture you know i'm still kind of proud of the strength that it gave me and the sense of purpose but at the same time you know i don't champion that whole um, that culture and that symbol like i'll defend what i did because i feel like i saved a lot of lives when i was in afghanistan i mean there were i worked in the basically the command central and i did a lot of convoy coordination with something called PRT, which are provincial reconstruction teams. These convoys would go out and establish schools and they would send diplomats to talk to women and children about representation and education and making sure that they were safe. So I'm still proud of that part. And then there were, there were floods that happened that year that I was there. And I was part of that rescue effort you know, and coordinate all that. And I'm still proud of all that, but like, yeah, it, it doesn't, especially with the whole Trump kind of rigmarole, you know, it, it doesn't strike me as something to be proud of anymore, especially with that, the transgender ban that was in place. Yeah, no, I definitely hear that. And especially there are a lot of people who, can and I, I think it's I think it's amazing that you're able to still pull a lot of strength from that because there is a lot that like people get out of an institution or people are a part of an institution uh, that they find that they either don't agree with or they're doing things that are just bad and I'm not saying that 
man, I walked into a thing. I apologize. I started I started going somewhere. And then I was like, wait, what am I actually saying? Basically, I'm happy that you were able to find strength. Because like you say, like there there is a lot that you can still be proud of as a person. Uh, and I hear this a lot. And this is a very different experience. But I hear this a lot from a lot of people who are come from religion, get kicked out because of their queerness, and then find religion later in life. And it's this idea of like, I still have strength. I still have that. And again, very different, very different. But at the same time, that idea of like, I still was able to pull strength from this. And there is still a part of it that like, I, as a person can still pull and still be, but at the same time, like, there's a lot about the institution that needs to change. There's a lot about the institution that is not at this time good. But again, let me know if I'm just completely off base by saying that, because it is not an experience I have. No, you're so. fine. That's actually a good way to put it. Like, I don't, I don't consider it a source of pride anymore, but I do consider it a source of strength, a place to pull strength from. These days, I pull a lot of it from myself. <laughs> but like, still, I had that that experience in the service that you know, put a lot of that steel in me and that I still pull from that steel that it gave me, even though I consider it more an inherent part of who I am. And I feel like I pull more from that independently than I did the army itself. Now that I know who I am and what I am, and now that I understand that I'm transgender, just I understand the kind of strength that I have <laughs> the magic was inside of me all along, all along. So, you know, <laughs> that's the way I feel about it. Yeah. Know. It was inside yeah. me all along. And I know that now I feel like I'm in better shape mentally and physically now than I was when I was a soldier. Now that I've got, now that I've found my true self, does that make sense? Yeah. Like I feel like my true self has more steel than I ever did as a soldier. Absolutely. There's a lot of strength that one can pull when they start being able to live exactly who they are. And even if it's, and it's still a process, like everyone is always processing that everyone is constantly changing, figuring out who they are and that's fine. But to be able to actually say like, yes, I know who I am. There's a lot of strength in that. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> so we have to start wrapping up for this so that you and I can, talk with uh, my good friend Silas about the Lost Boys. But before we do, I want to talk about Halloween because we're going to be releasing this publicly uh, around October. And so I want people to be prepped and ready for Halloween. So what are some of the Halloween media that you consume? Is it like, are there movies that you go to? Is there music? Do you have like a Halloween playlist that you just throw on around the October season? I love Halloween to bits and pieces. I want you to look at this over here. Okay. Oh my I've gosh, I love it. all of Halloween decorations up all year. I love Halloween. So for those that uh, are just listening, uh, we I was just shown Samara's uh, a wall of pumpkins and jack-o'-lantern <laughs> paraphernalia. It's it's amazing. I love it. Yes. So, so tell me more. Tell me, like, are there movies? Is there music? Like, hit, hit me with things that people should listen to this Halloween. There's not a lot of, like, quote-unquote Halloween music that I listen to. I'm not really even sure what that would entail, but I've got, <laughs> I have a playlist on Spotify that's basically a soundtrack for the Malice Domestica series. Ooh. And it's got a lot of like really dark kind of electronica and rock and 
just that whole kind of dangerous witch hunter, vampire, slayer kind of vibe to it. You know, it's got a lot of hailstorm and pretty reckless and like, it doesn't have any, I don't think it's got any Rob Zombie on it, but it's still that kind, that same kind of aesthetic. It doesn't have Rob Zombie on it or really any male vocalists on it because I wanted to stick to that. Like I said, with the, uh, the origins of the novels, I wanted to have that angry rock chick kind of fuck the world kind of thing. Sorry. No, you, <laughs> you're good. You can start, you can start on my podcast. <laughs> you're good. Okay. But yeah, it's got that whole, I wanted to keep that girl anger element to it. I, I will freely admit I've just been like listening to a lot of power metal and a lot of like, for me, this Halloween is going to be a lot of power wolf. This this Halloween is going to be a lot of ghost. Uh, oh it's yeah! Be a, oh I my god, it. love it so much. People people are really divided on ghost. It's like, okay, I don't I don't trust people to go. I don't think I've heard ghost. Really? Oh no. my gosh, they are phenomenal. They're amazing. They're basically this like I don't know how to describe ghost. I'll send you some of their links because they're fantastic. It is a male vocalist, but at the same time, it's like yeah, no, he's like it's some good stuff um yeah cool is is there anything else while we're uh before we wrap up is there anything else that you want people to know either about you about malice domestica about uh anything at all before i get any hate mail i want to go ahead and apologize for the the uh garbage disposal scene in the second book because i know it's kind (laughs) of a sore point with some people it just kind of happened that way like i don't want to spoil it but i needed a way for a certain character to hurt themselves. And that was the first thing that I could think of Mm. that that specific character could do. Mm. And it's, I kind of wanted the shock value to be honest, because it's still, you know, it's a fantasy story, but it's still a horror story. And kind of, I hadn't really had a lot of those shock moments in the story yet. So I kind of wanted to, and also got this, picture in my head of what it looked like and it was just so striking that i had to put it in the book you'll know when you see it (laughs) (laughs) when i when Um, i sit down and read them oh my god i'm so excited i'm not gonna lie (laughs) yeah yeah but also also um i hope everybody likes the books and i love my fans to bits and pieces and don't ever be afraid to you know email me at three in the morning to tell me, you know, I love this book or I love this character or, you know, if you kill this character off, I'm going to come find you. You know. <laughs> do, do you want to advertise that to people? Yeah. I kind of <laughs> had that with my first series, my Outlaw King Gunslinger books. People mm-hmm. were like, if you kill off the mad gunslinger, Seymour, we're going to have issues. Okay. That's, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't want people emailing you. It's like, oh, Samara said I could email and say, like, you know, if you kill this character off. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. I will be sad. Just, as fuck. <laughs> that's it's just that's one of my favorite parts, if not my favorite part of the whole writing career thing is those middle of the night messages just to tell you how much they enjoyed the book or how much it means to them. And that's why. I want to keep 
the character's experience as authentic as possible because I want people to be able to find themselves in these characters and in these stories, and I want it to resonate with people. Even beyond the, the, the momentum aspect of it, I'm just that kind of a person, I guess. Awesome. All right, so how can people find you if they want to? How can they email you and say that they're going to be very mad at you? <laughs> well, I've got a contact form on my website. Um, it's got... <laughs> It's got all my social media on it too. I would feel free to send me a friend request or follow me on Twitter. Um, <clears throat> my website is sahuntbooks.com. Um, yeah, you can find pretty much everything there. Awesome. All right. So thank you all for listening. Uh, if you're listening to this for free, we uh, is a transphobic have a Patreon, patreon.com slash is it transphobic. You can find us on Twitter at is it transphobic. We're finally on Instagram because I broke down and finally started an Instagram and it's you bet you guessed it. Is it transphobic? Uh, and thank you all so much for listening. If you are a paid subscriber, then thank you so much for subscribing. You are getting this a month earlier than anyone else. So I hope that you enjoy the, this uh, conversation that uh, Samara, author S.A. Hunt, and I have just had. <laughs>